Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. The leftist comedy podcast for everyone. I am Kate Willett. And I'm Juan Adil Sheikhi. And we are joined today, uh, later on in the episode, by Jackie Fielder, who is just such a wonderful person. She ran for state senate in California, and she also uh, is now, you know, getting traction with a project to build a public bank in SF. But first, we want to talk about uh, the most important thing that happened this week, which is that Trump has been arrested. Uh, He's in jail now. Um, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, we, we all saw it, it happened. Uh, yeah. Me and Kay, we, we, we saw it live and we cheered for it and we clapped and we were like, finally, the resist people have won. Yeah, it was, uh, there was a, a high speed uh, Trump chase, you know, with police. But... You know what? If he gets, if he gets arrested, honestly, I'll, uh, I'll lay off bullying the resist people for a day or two. Yeah. I feel like they they deserve this. They've been they've been they've been at it since the Mueller report. They've been tweeting every day. They've been like, this is their fantasy. And I feel like this is their American dream. And I think they're like they should be able to live it if it happens. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh I mean, you know, they're not wrong. It wouldn't be pretty funny. I mean, I guess they don't think it would be funny. They think it would be you know, justice broad and all problems fixed with our country, but you know exactly, yeah. I mean, my 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 only thing about this is that if if Trump gets arrested, then I feel like, then what? What happens? Yeah. Like, what's what's their mission statement after that? Who are they trying to get arrested? Who are they fighting? Yeah, Trump. And so the reason we're talking about this is Trump announced this weekend that he would be arrested in New York yesterday on tuesday um and i you know i as far as i know that that has not actually happened even though it would be so fucking funny but it seemed to me like he was trying to like stir up his supporters again um to you know do some type of events i don't know what but you know like i mean it's it's incredibly funny to uh to announce that you will be arrested and give a date yeah <laughs> and and for people to run with it like this is how desperate people are for him to get arrested that they're like okay this man has lied about literally everything but we're gonna believe this one yeah man it's it is just so funny i was like actually just talking to this dude on a dating app hopefully he's not listening to the show but you know i was just like you know what, what do you think about what's happening right now and he was like january 6th was like one of the worst days in our country and it's like yeah i mean it was pretty bad but i just can't imagine like i don't know just like watching the hearings and then thinking like yeah if some people go to jail over this like our our problems are are fixed you know like it's just not mm, i i i also think it's so funny that the one thing that's if trump gets arrested we'll see about that I don't the, think the he will, that, no. Yeah, but the, the the thing that they eventually got him is paying a porn star. None of the other things. Oh, wait, is this what... Is that what he would get arrested for? I, like, really just don't follow this. Oh, yeah, I believe it. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the hush money to uh, Stormy Daniels. To Stormy Daniels. Oh, yeah, she became, like, a resistance celebrity for a while, too. Um, <laughs> Which know? is great. I Which mean, is that, yeah. And, you know, like... No, she is. Yeah, yeah. I remember, like, for for a second that uh, she wanted to do stand up comedy and like literally sold the venue, and I was like, sure. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, but so I I don't know. I to me it just doesn't really seem like. I mean, this is from the New York Times today. How soon could Mr. Trump be arrested? You can just hear the horniness in there, you know. But. uh if it's Mr. just like okay, how how old is Trump? I think he's like, how old is he? Trump age, okay, Trump age. Uh, let's see, seventy six years old. Yeah. At this point, just let linear time do its job. Yeah, it's not like he's very healthy either. You know, like he's, uh, I don't know, like 
he doesn't seem like he's taking very good care of himself. So yeah, hopefully... exactly. We 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 all know about his diet and what what he's into and all of that. Just let let time take care of it at this point. Just yeah, taking a break. You have Ron DeSantis running. Yeah. Also, by the way, speaking of Ron DeSantis, is I am actually so upset. Like I think this is what Trump get arrested should get arrested for, is the nickname that he came up. Wait for Ron DeSantis. What meatball Ron? No, the other one, like the second. Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Well, that's why he changed it because it wasn't a good nickname, so he changed it and came up with a better one. But he said, but no, he said that he's not gonna go with uh, meatball Ron because this sounds like very low class, and he's a high class person who's not supposed to say stuff like this. Oh, he he got rid of the name meatball Ron. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm like, I'm sorry. Meatball Ron is a perfect nickname. You can't take that away from us. No, Meatball Ron was great. I bet he brings it yeah. back. I bet he brings it yeah, back. Yeah, he should bring it back. Literally, that would take, like, that would stop him from being president because no one is going to vote for someone called Meatball Ron. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. I'm sorry, but it's really good. No, I mean, like, no, no one can deny that he's good at nicknames. Yeah. And they stick. I don't think I I don't know. I mean, I'm just really curious what's gonna happen with this like Republican primary. It doesn't seem like it's really started up yet, but it's gotta start soon. So we'll see what happens. It feels like they're just I I don't know. This is one hundred percent pure speculation, but it feels like they're all just like, Ugh, I don't wanna do it yet, you know? <laughs> I know, I know. I'm I'm interested in seeing like what Republicans are gonna like are they gonna support Ron or Trump or like what is it? I think they're gonna support Trump. Like I think yeah, that, yeah. I mean, I think that they're like fine with DeSantis, but I think that the like the Trump is where people's really like passion. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I, hopefully they just keep fighting like that because this only worked for one person is Biden because he's not doing anything. Yeah, I don't think we talked man. about the uh, married. Marion Williamson candidacy on the show yet? Oh yeah. Oh, we have not. No, we have not. So, yeah. I mean, hey, we'll see about that. I don't know. I mean, I I think she's a I think she's a good person, but again. Yeah, I mean, it's like to me, it doesn't. I know some people are rolling around on this. It doesn't seem like she is really, you know, prepared to. Uh, no to do what she would need to do to have a meaningful shot. I mean, it's definitely, we don't see her building a grassroots movement the way that, you know, Bernie understood was necessary for his campaign. Um, I'm not saying that she's doing like a vanity run. Like I do think it's, you know, good for there to be some challengers to Biden, but I am not at all inclined to invest my hope into electoral politics at this particular level at this particular race like you know i obviously hope that it's not like trump or desantis but i don't think that it's at this point honestly yeah the only person who i would really encourage not to run is andrew yang please oh my god his supporters are so fucking annoying we are annoyed enough. We've been through enough. We don't need that. We don't need that fuck that fucking dork. Yeah. With his stupid tweets and his stupid party or whatever. We're not going right. We're not going left. We're just going forward. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, cool, man. That's that's so fucking awesome. I can if I see one more blue hat, I'll I'll lose my fucking mind. Yeah. Yeah, it's a... Yeah, I mean, I was annoyed enough when he ran for mayor of New York, you know, and uh, I, I mean, I know questionably probably would have done a better job than Adams, maybe. I mean, Adams has this sort of special love of the police and a long time relationship with real estate developers. I mean, anybody who's mayor of New York is going to get that stuff. But, you know. I think both of them are really, really bad. So yeah, no, I I agree. I just I just think he's so annoying, and that's why yes. like I'm like I don't want to be annoyed. Like I don't want someone bad and also be annoyed. That's a yeah, lot. Exactly. Like Biden is bad, but he doesn't really even come out a lot. Yeah. You know. He doesn't use emojis and stuff when he tweets. Yeah. Andrew Yang used to follow me on Twitter, <laughs> and I don't know. Maybe he still does. I haven't checked, but you know what I was I went after. Uh, he endorsed Biden. I was like, 
I tweeted something smarky, snarky, like, oh yeah, like those guys said he was like all about change, but he's like, you know, just basically like lining up behind the establishment candidate. And then I just get yeah. a reply from Andrew Yang. He's like, I understand you're really disappointed. <laughs> I'm just like, why are you in my replies? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. You've heard it here first. Uh, Andrew Yang is, is one of the main reply guys. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure if something's funny, we'll cover it on the show. But at the same time, I don't see myself getting invested in uh, anything about this race, really. You know, like, I just, no. I think it's just, yeah. Like, I know we've been shifting a lot to like, sort of like local type uh, political things, you know. Uh, and yeah. I, I think that the reason that we've been doing that is because that's where there's an opportunity to make some changes right now. 100%. 100%. Yeah, I feel like we're at a point now where, like, if you're... <laughs> I feel like this is how you know you uh, uh, grew politically, is to understand where the power is, because... Yeah. Yeah, the whole thing of just, like, worrying about, like, the presidential elections and all of that shit, it's just, like, I'll I'll think about it in, what, 2028? 20, that's in, that's yeah. when Biden is, is well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like it seems like national politics right now for leftists is just 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 tweeting out again and again. AOC has betrayed us. No, <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I mean, sure, but like, what did you think yeah. was going to happen? You know, like exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. What did you like? What did, like? Yeah, what do you think she's going to do? It's just yeah, I'm just like throw up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, so if we can get into our interview. Uh, yeah, this interview with Jackie Fielder, I, I just thought was so, she's so smart. She's really insightful. And we talked about public banking. Uh, we talked a little bit about, you know, affordable housing. Um, we talked about policing, you know, just a lot, of, a lot of the themes. But I think that she has a really, really unique perspective um, on these issues uh, and, I you're you're just gonna love this one. I'm pretty sure. Yes, yeah. I agree. All right, see you later. Just listen to Reply Guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys. Uh, we are here with Jackie Fielder, who is a repeat guest of the show. Um, she was on in 2019, which feels like so long ago. The pre-pandemic world was it not 2019? No, it was. No, sorry, I'm just shaking my head as to how how long ago that. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that was a long. That was four years ago. That's uh, that's a long time, I think. Yeah. What even is time? Um, yeah. So that's our first question for you, Jackie. What even is time? Uh, yeah. Exactly. And if you uh, could explain that in like less than one minute, that would be perfect. But also, it could be longer than one minute because yeah, we we will never is, know what is time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, we wanted to have you on the show because you um have been really pushing for there to be a public bank in San Francisco and um, leading a campaign for that. And, you know, I just think that th that's really neat. And I, I would love to hear more about like what that campaign has been, how we can support. And uh, maybe first of all, what the heck is a public bank and why do we need one? That's a great question. And something that we're still exploring in San Francisco. Um, hi, everyone. I'm honored to be back on the podcast. Um, it's been a minute since I've done any podcast. So fun times. Um, yeah, I have been working on the public bank here in San Francisco since 2017. We kicked off because it's a really personal matter for me. Um, mm -hmm. Back in 2016, I was watching a lot of people who looked like me and relatives standing up against law enforcement at the Standing Rock protests, um, all in support of our treaty rights and against the Codex pipeline. So the at that point, we saw all these Wall Street banks that were financing the pipeline and Seattle, San Francisco, lots of other cities wanted to get our money out of those Wall mm -hmm. Street banks. So we were trying to figure out where do we put our money? Um, there's these smaller banks. The problem is there's some legal limits about how how small the banks can be. Long story short, credit unions, other banks were way too small to take on San Francisco's $13 billion budget. Other wow. cities, other smaller cities could, could move their money, but we decided, all right, well, why don't we just create our own bank? <laughs> and um, 
obviously easier said than done. And we're in our sixth year now. Um, the good news is we have gotten the city to convene a reinvestment working group, which is working on uh, draft business plans for a public bank. So um, I think to summarize, public banking involves a government agency um, either in whole or in part owning a bank where they accept deposits. Um, public banks aren't inherently good. There are over 600 public banks around the world. Um, mm. Some of them engage in fossil fuel financing. For example, the Bank of North Dakota, which is where the Sandy Rock protests were, uh, lent the state government something like $2 million for law enforcement response. So, of mm. course, we don't want a San Francisco public bank that does that. We want something that upholds economic, racial, gender, and um, environmental justice. So we have been convening this working group for the past year. The city has um, full of financial experts and uh, affordable housing experts and finance advocates. So we're at the point where it's becoming real. And we have never reached this point. Um, there are other public banking groups around the country, including in New York. And mm -hmm. we all have our different flavors. You know, every town is different. Every town has different priorities. Um, every town is going to have a different governance structure that works for them. Um, we can get into more of that later. But that is the summary. So... Wow. You know, I was obviously it's been on all of our minds the uh, SVB bank, uh, well, SVB, or I can say Silicon Valley Bank. I can't go SVB Bank. That's not going to work. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was really funny to uh, see all those um, tech bros uh, melt down. I, I loved that for them, if I'm being honest. Um, it's pretty, pretty wonderful. Um, but, uh, you know, it seems like San Francisco would be. A, a very interesting place to have a public bank because you know there is uh as, as we've all been thinking about lately like all these like you know venture capitalists and really like you know kind of i don't want to say shady guys because a lot of them are just they're not even particularly shady they're just like a normal amount of shady but <laughs> you know i'm imagining that there would be potential you know to sort of loan people um, money for businesses or for housing, like maybe bank, regular banks, you know, wouldn't necessarily focus on. Is that part of it? Yeah. I mean, as Silicon Valley Bank and the collapse of the other banks have shown us, commercial lenders are willing to sacrifice common sense, like what's called risk management practices and engage in backdoor lobbying against the very regulations that would have prevented this kind of crisis. Um, and they do all of this just to maximize profits for their shareholders. Obviously, that didn't work out. But mm -hmm. um, with a public bank, you essentially put taxpayers and the public in the seat of shareholders. Um, mm -hmm. Again, we can talk more about governance and like how that actually works out to hold the bank accountable. But that is the concept. And so they inherently balance, you know, making returns for the city, getting money back for the loans that they loan out, and also the social benefits. And the expectation is that you dish out lower interest rates in exchange for these social benefits. So in San Francisco, the working group um, contracted with a kind of like consultancy agency that convened several different focus groups around affordable housing, renewable energy and small businesses. And the needs are really clear. Um, Wall Street banks are not willing to lend to quote unquote risky people, which in our racialized system often means business owners of color, um, women, LGBTQI people who have never owned a business. Um, mm -hmm. It also means that small businesses who need the smaller loans, like under a hundred thousand, don't get that as easily. Um, and, you know, there are also CDFIs that are a huge part of this. So CDFIs stands for Community Development Financial Institutions. Um, they are not depository banks, but they are lenders in communities, often in low-income communities of color, to, mm -hmm. um, you know, 
sustain economic development in those neighborhoods. Um, the problem is they really lack some of the the structures that they need to maximize their impact really due to like economies of scale stuff. Um, and they don't have a ton of capital to begin with. So $13 billion in San Francisco is just being handed over to Wall Street banks to invest however they want. Mm-hmm. And we expect, you know, some percentage of a return. I don't think it's even that large. Maybe it's like 1%, certainly under 2%. Um, so what if we just put that money to use for affordable housing, which is badly needed in San Francisco and the Bay Area as a whole, um, decarbonization, um, small businesses, you know, hundreds of small businesses have had to close down since the pandemic, but also way before then because of gentrification, rising commercial real estate prices and just general economic pressures in San Francisco for, for decades. Um, the public bank is here to, to provide a backstop and to stimulate recovery, which has been really slow in San Francisco, especially downtown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have been seeing that online that, um, oh man. And just some of the, uh, maybe not so good ideas that people have about how to do those recoveries. <laughs> like uh, one of the ones that we talked about recently was uh, the people that are trying to make it so that um, windows and bedrooms are not required anymore. Uh, That's probably my least favorite one of the, the ideas. Oh my gosh. Yeah, exactly. And right now what's, I think the only thing I've seen on the table it is a gigantic tax cut for companies to come do business in San Francisco. You know, hearkening back to the 2011 Twitter tax break in San Francisco. Made me so mad. Yeah. So that's what's on the table at the moment, but that's not our only option. Um, a public bank is also related to the conversation around green banking. Um, the mm-hmm. thing is, green banking does not necessarily mean deposits and the ability of a bank to create money that's that's really what they do um because we're a fractional reserve um system where a bank only needs to hold on to a certain percentage of deposits at any one time like silicon valley bank showed us and then the rest they can lend out have in other investments and so that's that's the ultimate goal for a public bank to be a depository institution specifically for the city of san francisco and our you know, billions of dollars that we have for cash. But in the meantime, we're going to, the plan is to start a like baby bank. That's not exactly a depository institution. It's more of like Mm -hmm. a revolving loan fund and prove its concept, have a working democratic structure that can hold it accountable to the mission of principles. And then uh, show some demonstration projects, probably honestly doing a lot of participation lending, which is like buying loans off of the shoulders of the CDFI so that they have more ability to loan out to other things. Um, of course, all of this would be in line with our like principles around our, mm-hmm. our policy oriented goals. Um, and this also dovetails with the green banking conversation because right now the Biden administration is figuring out what to do with these billions of dollars in um, funds and how to distribute them so that they get to um, people who need them, 40% of which I think is supposed to be going to disadvantaged communities. And right now, there's a lot of backdoor like squabbling about how to do that. Um, one of the big kind of like constituencies lining up to receive this funding is uh, the Green Bank um Coalition for Green Capital, basically green bank folks. Um, Mm -hmm. And green banking, you know, in essence is basically like lending, oftentimes public-private partnerships, lending to stimulate the transition to renewable economy. Problem is, you know, as we say in the climate world, the transition is inevitable, but whether it's just or not is not a guarantee. Yeah. So... We're concerned that 
and and we're working to make sure that if there is any kind of green element or green bank to our banking plans in San Francisco, that they are rooted in principles of environmental justice, that there are folks who are from the EJ community and advocates and experts on environmental justice who serve on any kind of governance structure overseeing this bank or the baby bank, um, and that they also adhere to principles around labor standards and um, training and skilled workforce and unionized workforce for uh, renewable energy projects and decarbonization projects. That's awesome. Yeah, <sighs> lots going on. I guess what I'm thinking is, is since, you know, uh, you were talking about public banking and stuff like, has there been like in San Francisco any push against that? And if so, who is it by? Because I imagine some people are just like, no. Yeah, great question. Um, I think I've only seen a couple op-ed pieces through the years here and there. Um, certainly the, when we were pushing for the state level law to like legalize mm-hmm. public banks and create a, a formal structure for them to be approved by the state, that was in 2019. Um, the California Bankers Association, predictably, they represent all the different um, Wall Street banks. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe a while back, the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce might have weighed in but nothing really substantial that's the thing about politics in san francisco and um economic measures in san francisco is voters overwhelmingly agree that we should be taxing billionaires that we should be taxing corporations that we need to address racial disparities in you know wealth and also lending um, public banking, every time it's come up before the Board of Supervisors, um, mm-hmm. it's been a unanimous decision to support whatever work is going on. So, you know, people are generally behind it and really interested in it. And all that the, you know, elite owning class has is a ton of money. So there's yeah. no real grassroots. There's no real grassroots. There's certainly turf organizations, but there's no real grassroots opposition to this. I mean, one thing that is really, um, when you're talking about all the billionaires in San Francisco, one thing that has just really struck me, kind of paying attention to it more, is just like how much these billionaires are attempting to make themselves seem organized and bigger than they are. (laughs) And like to kind of give a concrete example of that, I was looking yesterday, there was this uh, organization organization in quotes right um but like a a group called uh abundant sf that they just started it's like the pantheon ceo um zag rosen or something and then they have this other group which you tweeted about uh grow sf and it feels like they just keep making these sort of different lobbying organizations that is really just like three billionaires in a trench coat i mean if exactly (laughs) random assholes that are like yeah we we love this or whatever but on the whole like very limited support but they're sort of making it seem like they are uh you know, this that their billionaire, their pro-billionaire agenda, like the one where they get all the tax breaks, the one where uh, the streets are lined with police, that there's, you know, just overwhelming public support for these things. And it, it seems like there is some support, but just certainly not as much as they are trying to make it look like there is. No, and sometimes, I won't name one of them who was recently involved in the SBB uh, bank run, but sometimes they don't even know how local politics or policymaking works like they will call for like someone to challenge this person and that person is actually like termed out coming up um same thing happened with the da but you know they are exactly three billionaires in a trench coat all the same thing yeah i'm surprised that people are like extremely socially awkward and do not know how to talk to people cannot organize um uh yeah yeah they 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 just stay on twitter yeah it's i mean it's just like i was you know i was kind of having i was having sort of a great time during the um svb 
uh, no you are in the trenches you're always putting in your trench your hours in the trenches but I I was having a great time dragging those people uh, (laughs) and it was funny because they were just you know they were tweeting about how you know we should just feel bad for them sad little billionaire and stuff and I was having a fun time screenshotting and be like look these people basically some version of do not have the best interest of the public at heart <laughs> they're Mm-mm. they're not motivated by uh, no. creating something better for everyone which seems obvious but you know <clears throat> it seems like they're able to uh to, to trick a fair few people i just i just love even like the stories they've been sharing so we like you can feel bad for those people like being like this woman right here is a mom and a small business owner and then you look more into it and you're like this woman has a, a net worth of twenty million dollars. What are you even talking about? Oh yeah, the small the small business owner. Um, yeah, I know yeah. I'm like, what is a small business to you? Yeah, she I was a McKinsey that. consultant, and her husband was like a VP of like at a manufacturing company. And she's like, I you know I drive a broken down <laughs> car. <laughs> It's like, well, why? <laughs> why, are, why are we doing that? It's really not necessary. So, oh no, I know, and it's so funny that like the every time I try to watch like a video or something online about like um, when I was trying to understand what happened with the bank and all of that, most of it is just like you know, like not even like tech pros. It's just like those, like their fans making those videos, and every video is like has this positive spin on it how like i'm supposed to watch like this bank crash and think no this is good and your money is safe and you will be fine and i'm like am i supposed to just pretend that this is good like how and you see the comments and everyone is like no actually you have a great point i'm gonna continue uh to support these type of banks i'm like these people are just absolutely insane to me because they really believe that, you know, these billionaires, like, have their, like, best interests at heart. And I'm like, wh- I don't know what needs to happen for you to stop believing that. And that's the thing is, we're talking about billionaires. Um, we're also talking about corporations that I, I saw somewhere that they, um, in the tech world, you know, it was an unspoken secret. You're supposed to be banking with SVB. And they would mm-hmm. have these, like, white glove services for... VCs and other execs around like, oh, they would give them uh, lower mortgage rates uh, in exchange for having their startup or their their mentees or however you call them um, bank with SVB. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it's just plain corruption. Obviously, then we also saw the SVB execs give themselves bonuses before the bank crashed. Yeah. Um, it's just it's just all for maximizing. You know, it's just all green. And the thing about public banking is it's the antithesis to that, at least if we make it so. Mm-hmm. These people really challenge me on my uh, my abolitionist principles because I just look at these fucks <laughs> and all I want to <laughs> soul is for them to go to jail. <laughs> like, I just, I want these people to go to jail. If we abolish jail, okay, they don't have to go. That's better, <laughs> but just fucking throw Gary Tan in jail. <laughs> so, like, I mean, it's... Oh, it- it can get more creative it can get more creative than that we can like make them listen in a room and watch tv of like all these progressive speeches we can just roll a tape of bernie sanders in a room and make them watch it for seven years yeah yeah if anything like yeah yeah i mean if anything we know about them is that it takes so little for them to feel oppressed yeah, <laughs> like because before Elon Musk bought Twitter, I remember like whenever like these one of those people got suspended or like even like their Twitter are not please not getting enough likes. They're like, I am being oppressed right now. <laughs> this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. Like I am, I am. If anything, uh, I am the most mistreated person in this country. And I'm like, <laughs> all of this because your tweets are not getting more than fifty likes. Maybe have you thought about maybe that you suck? And they're like, no. Yeah, it's not that. Just tweet yeah. a picture of a hot girl, man. It's like tweet or a good. Food or stop item. being evil. Yeah, yeah like, anything. Yeah, it's just, just balling. Uh, if you, I'm sorry, but if you're over 23 and you're talking about the amount of likes that your tweets get, <laughs> like, and 
it's just you need to you need to stop and i realize that that is a damning statement towards even some of our friends on the left but <laughs> gotta just move on to more popular content or exactly. just be like i'm feeling a niche most people don't want to hear about this but some people do you know yeah exactly exactly uh, yeah <laughs> You know, so Jackie, I was uh, thinking back to our conversation a few years ago, which I actually remember really well. I don't always remember really well, but that one kind of stuck with me. And, you know, I I was just thinking about a lot of the topics we covered, uh, like how to do affordable housing, what a just transition for climate looks like. And man, this is going to be a a long wind up to a question. But like one thing that I've been thinking about a lot myself recently, no, no surprise to listeners, but, you know, just like how to do like what is what is just policy for land use and you had a lot of ideas at that time that you know it's just really been proven right to me like how correct those were and specifically um some of the things that you mentioned were like you know just uh expropriating vacant properties and giving them to um to unhouse people to live in. Obviously, you're not the first person to to say that and you won't be the last, but uh, you know, it's not something that seems to be happening. And another idea that, you know, we talked about at that time was just giving land back to indigenous people. And like that is a big part mm-hmm. of, you know, like actually being able to uh for lack of a better word, not all die from climate change. And I was wondering like has your ideas on like either of those topics evolved? Are you still, you know, still feeling the same way? Any additional thoughts? Yeah. I mean, thanks for that question. Um, I still feel largely the same, you know, that was uh, four years ago, our interview. And at the time I had this, this housing plan for a hundred billion dollars over 10 years. Mm -hmm. And in 2022, last year, California budget surplus was almost 100 billion. Um, the uh, also the there's a group of labor unions as well as Jobs with Justice who did a study, an economic study, on how much it would cost for a one million job green transition in California, and the estimate was like 70 billion. Um, mm. I think it, it was either in 2021 or 2020, 2021, I think when Newsom announced that, um, he would be committing, committing like billions of dollars to affordable housing. And at the time, I think that was something new, not saying that I alone influenced that, but was joined by, you know, a chorus of a lot of us who are insisting that as we've seen since the pandemic, Um, real estate developers will not build the housing that we need. Look at the market. Um, They just will not build at the lower levels, which is where the majority of people are who desperately need housing, who are rent burdened, who are stuffed into crowded uh, apartment buildings. Um, You know, we're not even talking about homeownership at this point in San Francisco. We're talking about like building the units to get people inside. And I also think it's, it's so weird for deregulationist housing folks to say we need to build all types of housing to solve homelessness they're talking about a ungodly timeline to actually have all that housing trickle down and we know that it won't um so when they talk about all kinds of housing they mean any and all kinds and when you have no stipulation about what kinds of housing you want to build you leave it up to the real estate developers you leave it up to um the private speculators and developers who will build whatever housing gets them the most money. Yeah. At the moment, that's at the higher end. Yeah, it's not it's, for homeless people. I, I I think, you know, people call it all housing matters. And I think it's justly, <laughs> honestly, you know, <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, there have been, I think, instances of progress in the Bay Area, like you guys just passed a vacancy tax, which seems like might might help. Yeah. Yeah. We passed a vacancy tax. Um, we also passed uh, tenant protections, um, Prop I, which was the affordable housing funding. So like funding for um, for deeply supportive, sorry, deeply 
affordable housing um, by Supervisor Dean Preston was put on the ballot in 2020 and it passed. Um, mm-hmm. The deregulationists were, some were on board, some were like meh about it. Um, we also passed in the same cycle uh, a measure to legalize and allow San Francisco to build 10,000 units of social housing. The problem is we pass these things, but there's a whole internal war in city hall, um, especially on the part of the mayor to prevent these kinds of things from happening. Um, The mayor's office, no matter who's been in it for the past several decades, um, except for probably Art Agnos back in the late eighties, early nineties, has always been on the side of real estate development, big business interests, corporations. And so they don't want to see successful social housing. They don't want to see steeply discounted Mm -hmm. housing. During the pandemic, the mayor had millions of dollars in emergency funds to put people in hotels, put them in supportive housing, and just didn't. It took the entire Board of Supervisors, entire Mm -hmm. tenants' rights and homelessness rights movement to actually get some people in there, but not all of them. Um, And then they kicked them out. Um, So all this to say... Yeah, we, we have made some progress, but at the same time, have keep keep coming up against these um, really stubborn, um, sometimes really interpersonal and petty politics around who is right and who is wrong, which ideology should win the day. And, and who suffers is people on the street, people who are rent burdened, um, tenants who are paying more than 30% of their income on rent, um, families who are being pushed out, as we know, over the decades, constantly, and that hasn't stopped, especially with evictions um, and debt from evictions, debt from rent and the pandemic piling up. Um, Those are the people that suffer. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, it's just like, hopefully more people are kind of, I, I, I see some momentum for social housing happening around the country and it, like as you said there's you know a lot of obstacles to it within pretty much every city hall at this point but you know hopefully hopefully that's starting to shift i mean i i, I say hopefully because yeah what else are we what else, are what we else? <laughs> exactly yeah exactly um you know we actually uh we interviewed malcolm harris a few weeks ago um about his book palo alto and we had a good conversation uh have you have you heard of that book have you i have heard of it yeah but it's it's an interesting i haven't read it yet but it sounds like a really interesting book and he goes through the whole history of um of it's you know basically silicon valley palo alto specifically you know and just like from the uh from the 1870s to what's happening now and basically you know makes the case for like how a lot of the horrible things that we see now are you know an extension of seller colonialism and that like we're just not really going to be able to solve these problems without giving a significant amount of land back. And, you know, I think you were the first person that I talked to about that a few years ago. So I did want to return to that topic with you and see, you know, what your thoughts are on it at this point. Yeah. And, and just like to um, bring it back a little bit to the real estate interests and the deregulationists, you know, all these organizations, all these powers and forces at play have been at play since the 1906 earthquake when the entire city was raised um, and we had suddenly we had a ginormous housing crisis and ever since then um, corporate interests special interests the wealthy elite have tried to push their agenda around how the, who the city should be for and to give you one example it's it's just been the same people with different names the there's a prominent organization called the San Francisco, um, what is it called? San Francisco um, Policy for Urban Research. It's some something like mm-hmm. Spur. It's called Spur. Um, San Francisco Planning and Urban Research Institute, I think. And they used to be called before it was a bad word. 
the San Francisco Planning and Urban Redevelopment Association. Um, and, and what's noticeable about, you know, the deregulationist movement in housing is they never talk about redevelopment. They never talk mm-hmm. about how there were promises to make so much more uh, affordable housing units, so much more housing in general, especially in places like the Fillmore um, and Soma, South Market. And what was required was saying to the people who lived there, largely black, um, immigrant, people of color, saying, we will get you more housing, better housing. We'll just put you somewhere else first. Obviously, they never lived up to those promises. And the legacy of that trauma, because it is trauma, losing your entire community, losing your connections, your daily life, that has an impact on someone. That was thousands of people. They never talk about that because they know that that is the root of their legacy. So um, all this to say, same people, different actors. And yeah, it is tied to settler colonization and that mentality of, um, yes, in my backyard. Whose backyard? Hmm. Because even though I myself, I'm not born and raised in San Francisco, um, I also like as a Native American, my ancestral territories are North Dakota, South Dakota, actually present day, and then Mexico, like, you know, and we can all trace our heritage back and get into like, you know, then conversations and arguments with like right wingers about Western civilization, whatever. Um, But there's this just complete, not obliviousness, but like willful ignorance. Yeah. About the stories that were in this, even this building, like not even talking about the land and indigenous people, but like in this building, this neighborhood, this community, who was here before us? What kind of stories were happening? What did it take for me to get here? And it's this idea that we all live in a vacuum, this individualized vacuum. None of us are connected. Indigenous life ways, I mean, most recognize that we all are connected. Um, with different stories, some some violent, some beautiful. But yeah, I mean, there's been successful instances around California and the country now, more recent years around uh, land back programs. And people always get weird about it because they're like, oh, there's going to be, we just have to see the entire land base. And what are we going to do? Are we going to displace people? Because that is what settler colonizers did to indigenous people. Yeah. They think that it's going to be the same Never mind that we're only 1% of the population. We barely take up like the size of my apartment, you know? Yeah, it, it's it's funny because how most of it is just like projecting, you know, you're just like, you think because, it, I mean, I mean, the same thing applies to, you know, immigrants and stuff like that. When you hear about like, oh, they want to, you know, come here and take our stuff and like, you know, replace us and stuff. And I'm like, I mean, just to be fair, you, you replaced Julia, you did. So that that is true. That is very, that is very true. I did it on purpose. <laughs> but uh, it, it's funny because like, you're like, oh, it's just because you did that to people it doesn't mean other people are going to do it to you and i feel like that you know comes back to your point and it's just like well it's just you know we're talking about different things here yeah i mean it's, it strikes me as like that you know there's ultimately like the way that we operate with land is that you know if you whoever has the most money gets to have it uh it can't be shared you know and like i think that it seems like it's it's like this idea that you know you have to just uh kick everyone off who doesn't have the most money like that principle isn't really working out um at all i would say and i think that it feels tough for people to imagine that maybe like not everybody would be super down to to operate that way you know yeah exactly um and again like going back to yeah i'm sure any anyone who's lived in san francisco was born and raised here anyone who's lived here for a long time and left they come back and they're like gosh it's so different and that is that is all it's not it's not natural those are policy decisions it's not inevitable that these yeah. things happen they're all policy decisions um 
and every no it, the 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 theme about like san francisco is dead that has been going on for decades decades and obviously it has changed yeah. it has been gentrifying but that story has been played over and over and over and over again um and there are some people who have a right to say that because there are certainly businesses that they loved, community centers, community period that have disintegrated. But this idea that San Francisco is just up in flames and completely irredeemable, horrible place to live, like those people can. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, yeah. You, keep, you just keep hearing about it like about a lot of cities, like even like. Every time you talk to someone about Portland, Oregon, and the way they describe it, and then you go there and you're like, it seems fine yeah. to me. <laughs> like, but the way you see people talk about it on Twitter or, so, or, or something, you're like, that place literally is on fire. If you go there, you will be stabbed at the airport. <laughs> yeah. And instead of like catching a lift or whatever, you just, there's an app for someone to come and stab you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you get out of the plane and they, here comes the stabber immediately. It's also, it, it just, I'm always thinking about like, what is the motivation for Fox News to like dunk on San Francisco? Obviously, there's Pelosi, yeah. but in cities in general, it, you know, the fear, there's real, there are real reasons, real people behind real violent crimes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and that is not to dismiss that, but but overall, crime is, is down in San Francisco. Um, that has been reiterated by our chief of police even. Um, and at the mm-hmm. same time, I, I always wonder why Fox News wants to peddle this fear of cities. And, you know, it's it's kind of strange that the um, kind of carceral urbanists will line up to repeat their talking points when they're also trying to make cities enjoyable and livable. And it just shows that they're only doing it for a certain class of people. Yeah. Um, we have the same thing in New York people. too. It's like, I mean, it's, we're, I think we're real uh, sister cities here. Like before, you know, our last mayor's race and stuff, just a lot of that same, uh, same propaganda in this last, like, you know, governor's race, this is the same stuff, just, you know, leading people to think that the, uh, that yeah that the stabbers are just everywhere just waiting to stab you it's a you know a city of however many you know uh millions of people and uh at least two-thirds of them are employed as professional stabbers you know and uh <laughs> you know in our trains like just all the sort of like I mean, there are some instances of violence on the subway and they are sad but I mean it's like if you listen to you know, like any kind of vaguely right-wing news source, you would just have such a different picture. And, you know, it does seem like a certain amount of liberals, you know, either just run-of-the-mill liberals, like who aren't that politically engaged or, you know, people who do have a political agenda, like this this more carceral urbanist type, have been very much repeating that crime, propaganda, uh you know, and and sort of using San Francisco as a, a laboratory for it that I think yeah. we can very much see, like in New York, it's like uh, San Francisco is like the incubator of a lot of these <laughs> propaganda techniques. Mm-hmm. There's also something to say for um, the clicks and social media hype for mm-hmm. news outlets to get traction um, and that kind of shock yeah. and awe tactic of getting people to read their articles um yeah you know like new york daily news new york post come to mind um Mm -hmm. and how our social media world you know the attention economy incentivizes this kind of i mean sensationalizes and also preys on fear and as you know like especially with trump's election fear sells like it used to be sex sells now fear sells too Absolutely. Um, um, and there's also something to say for just society in general and kind of like the pandemic making, I think uh, a lot of folks, um, I know, you know, speaking even for myself, like it is hard to be isolated for a year and, and more for folks who decided to stay locked down for longer. Um, 
it does something to your brain that there's a reason why we had societies, you know, indigenous and other land-based cultures all around the world still um, in community, having real conversations, with real people at all times of the day, not being able to avoid, um, you know, social interactions, being held accountable for any instances of harm or wrongdoing. Um, there's something that breaks down in our society and just like collective psyche when we're not accountable to each other in the ways that we were, um, mm-hmm. when we're all just like zombied out on our phones or like on the screens, it just does something. And I'm, I'm really fascinated by any research that comes out around like what this time period has done to us and our mental health. Doesn't yeah, seem good. Absolutely. Doesn't seem good. Yeah. Doesn't really yeah. Yeah. <laughs> people are doing that well right now. I wouldn't say dare. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, like, I think that just, you know, like, cities all throughout the country are, you know, I mean, it's, you know, it's always been capitalism, but like, we are, you know, reaching that crisis point in capitalism that gets talked about where the alternative is like, you know, it's, it's socialism or barbarism, like, you know, like, I saw this uh, I saw this tweet from the guy that John Hamasaki, who ran for, you know, ZA of San Francisco uh, to to be like the more reformed candidate. And he was tweeting about how, like, you know, sometimes getting your car broken into is part of living in a city. And that's the way it goes. And personally, I think he's right. Like, honestly, it's just like I've had my car broken into in San Francisco three four times it sucks but like does it suck more than living in the suburbs no not at all you know and uh, (laughs) you know and you know just kind of people sort of jumping all over that with like you know we have to police this and stuff and you know I think that like a leftist solution a thing that you know leftists really keep talking about again and again is like let's deal with the root causes like let's make it so that no one is so poor that the only way that they have to uh you know meet their basic needs is breaking into someone's car like please you know root causes of this and you know yeah basically right wing and even liberals the solution is like you know just adding more cops and it's like how you know i don't yeah. think people see that there's really no end point to that like how many more cops can we add how much more poor can we let people get and if you just keep going on that trajectory eventually you have something that is undebatably fascist you know where it's like just not there's no debate about whether it's fascist absolutely yeah (laughs) yeah and i feel like i feel like the whole like uh concept of policing and like like basically policing people who who break into cars or whatever it's is is always based on like no these people are not poor these people are not broke these people are just bad and this is why they do what they do because they're bad and we just need to stop them. And so right-wing people or like some liberals or stuff, that's the root cause is that the behavior cannot be changed. It can only be curbed and stopped by the police. And like you said, the root cause for most of these things is these people just need to live and need to survive and they need money. And that's it. I guarantee you most people don't even enjoy breaking into other people's cars. I feel like we probably would like to just have money and a place to live in. And that's it. It's so much better that way. I'm trying to imagine <laughs> some like professional managerial class, like a car breaker in or let's just like, yeah, this is just really like authentic for me. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Like, most self-actualized when I'm breaking into cars, you know, this is my dream. And, you know, you got to grind, you got to, you got to hustle. Yeah. You know? My father, my father did it. My grandfather did it. It just, it's just a family business at this point. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, Cops will not prevent catalytic converter robberies. They will not prevent, they can't do anything about your car being broken into. And that's been a thing in San Francisco, any city for a long time, you should know to not leave your stuff visible in your car. If you are going to leave it for any more than a minute. Doesn't matter what time of day. Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, cops have established themselves. The only crime they are willing to stop is if you don't want to pay two point seventy five to take the subway. That's the only crime they are capable of preventing, and that's it. It's not even a crime, but you know, 
I've been like, you're good at it. I've been reading about this horrible thing that San Francisco kind of started, and other people, other cities have followed suit, and you know, Portland, and I, I think even New York, and definitely Los Angeles. This idea of ambassadors who are like little, uh, I mean basically mall cops for, for cities um and like the these ideas of like business improvement districts that just kind of privatize a section of a city they have these ambassador guys walking around i mean i'm not trying to be gendered about it or you know women and non-binary mall cop friends um are we, we see you we hear you you know but yeah any, any thought any thoughts on that um yeah it's just an interesting it's interesting how the libertarian fantasy around privatized security is is unfolding before our eyes with these cbds um and, and you mean community know, business districts right or yeah yeah okay. exactly so it's that where uh yeah private interests get together and um share the costs of kind of like a quasi-private public entity, and then they can contract out some private security. Um, yeah, it's really weird. And they can also um, have like a surveillance system. So it is really weird. And I'm not sure about the, the regulations on all of that um, and privacy, mm -hmm. but um, it is really weird. Um, I, I personally would love to have unarmed ambassadors of some sort and de-escalators like people who who actually care about like decreasing violent crime in public or whatever deterring it um obviously de-escalation is harder harder in some instances than others but if they like really care about the issue they need to understand that it's it's certainly not a cop that's going to make anyone feel any less ticked off. Yeah. You know, even, e even if you're not um, at that state, I know I personally like also get a little on edge when there's a cop around. Um, we all know that the cops don't want to do that. They have never said, please. Yes. Enlist us for responding to, um, you know, situations that are really heightened. All they have is the ability to escalate the situation. We've seen all over the country, you know, policies and practices around de-escalation. Merely their appearance is intimidating. Um, and so the kind of folks that we need are, yeah, and I hate to like be a broken record about it, but like social workers, people who understand the kinds of, um, mental problems that some folks have especially in public and if you do want to address the root causes like you need to understand that de-escalation is the first first step to like getting people um to a safe place and to keep, keep other people from um harm but like a cop and with a badge and a gun dressed in black who looks really intimidating is not going to make the situation any better um, and as we've seen from like horrible events around the country, it's often citizens unarmed who will step up and stop any further violence from happening. Um, so it's a tricky situation mm -hmm. and I would much rather have a not cop respond and deescalate these situations than a cop. Absolutely. And, but I think the, you know, like you said, who that non-cop is, is important. If the non-cop is somebody who is you know charged with like their job is uh to harass the unhoused people and then call mm -hmm. the cops well that doesn't really do anything they're just a exactly liaison to the cops you know um, and they just move people around that's yeah. what ends up happening Ex yeah it's like you know, where are people supposed to go i mean like i hopefully the answer would be inside to house mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. you know it's not uh it's just not clear to me that any of these people are really trying to have to have that happen like you know you don't want someone to use drugs on the train like where are they supposed to go inside you know like 
I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's just fucked up. But this has been a really good conversation. Um, where can listeners find you and also support uh, the efforts to build a public bank in San Francisco? Yeah, they can go to asapublicbank.org. Um, I occasionally tweet, not so much these days, but I'm on Twitter as well and Instagram, Jackie Fielder underscore. Thank you so much for coming on the show. For sure. Thank you for Thank having you. me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Muhammad al Sheikhi. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song is performed by Emily Fremgen and written by Emily with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we are at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's and I am at Mohanad al-Sheikhi. And Twitter is where you can find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is your land.